Let's roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Alex Kuss. I'm Alessio Cavatone. And I'm Mark Zelensky. Welcome to another episode of Countercharge. And Alex and I are absolutely thrilled because we have the man, the myth, the legend, the founder of the game we all love, we wouldn't be here without him, Alessio Cavatore. How are you doing today, Alessio? I'm great. How are you guys? Doing well. Hanging in there so far. It's a Sunday morning and wishing I had coffee like Alex. But, uh, you know, I didn't. I wasn't smart enough to do that before I came downstairs to record. So. <laughs> you got to plan ahead. <laughs> well, I have to say that uh, for, I would like to point out that the title, I feel a bit like I'm usurping. That's not really me, the, the man that is mostly responsible for Kings of War. That title would go to Ronnie. Ronnie Rant. I mean, uh, you know, I was uh, under contract with Ronnie. So if it wasn't for him, it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> but yes, I'll take the credit for the design. All right, I'll take that. <laughs> oh, feel free to take all the credit in the world, Alessio. Absolutely. So, but we're going to get into that in much more detail. But as tradition dictates, we got to go around the horn and see what's on our hobby table. So, Alex, what do you got up on the hobby table? Where are you working on today? Still painting yellow? I am still painting yellow. The never-ending saga of my League of Rordia army. I finished two hordes of infantry and my two troops of scouts so far. So I got foot guard and scouts done and I have assembled and base coated my horde of dogs of war. It's going smoothly if not quickly and then uh, hopefully I can get those guys done quickly and then I'm going to be working on my honor guard and my characters. So pretty much after this horde it's all the the monsters and fun stuff. So that'll be that'll be a good way to keep me motivated to finish i hope to finish early fall as things are reopening here to try to have an event in october so i would like to get the army done in time for that so just keep keep painting yellow until it stops how about you alessio what have you been working on uh, well i'm working on uh, miniatures for a different game i'm afraid not kings of war oh yeah you know i i have quite a few things on my plate can i say or you prefer if we move on oh go ahead well alessio what are you working on whatever you whatever you're working on <laughs> okay i'm working on miniatures for a game called dragon bond uh, okay. we're working on this game by uh draco studios and basically it's board game board game so i'm, I'm painting some of those miniatures or should i say having them painted Okay. <laughs> there you go. Big, I was going to ask that. Painting is a big word. I'm getting them painted. I'm yeah, they, getting paint on those miniatures. Perhaps yes. is a more correct way of saying it. Yes, I already admitted that I'm not into painting. I'm afraid that's not a part of the hobby that I enjoy. I I like playing, not painting. Yeah, there's only so much time in the day and that can go around. So 
you have to you have to parcel it out to what you enjoy. That's correct, and the people love that, and I understand that, but not uh, not for me. It's not for me. How about you, Mark? I am kind of looking forward to the day where I can 3D print my fully painted army. I mean, Brandon Rossbond's been on talking about Hero Forge, and you know, right now he's paying fifty dollars a painted mini that 3D printed. That's never going to happen for a war game. You know, one day those prices will come down, and you'll walk into the hobby shop and pick your army from a catalog, and it'll get printed and sent to you, or printed right there in the hobby store. It'll be very interesting to see where this hobby goes. Oh, you have, oh, you have a printer at home and you just buy the files and print it yourself at home that very well could be and uh, we might talk about that a little bit later as well so definitely and uh, for myself I am working on my Basilean army Alessio I'm going to stop right here because I have to ask the question how do you pronounce the name of the human faction that is in Kings of War that owns its own little hegemony down there and uh, off the infant sea Sir, you don't mean the Basileans. Basileans, that's it. Thank you. Well, we've had Basileans. What else have we have? Uh, Basileans? Uh... I would say Basileans, but of course, this being a fantasy world, who knows what the language is pronounced like. Uh, I would say Basileans, yes. I remember talking to you earlier, and you mentioned that you did uh, Basileans because at one time you were talking about making Basilians in the army or so, or naming them Basilians. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's Byzantium, isn't it? Is that the inspiration, isn't it? So I go Basileus. Basileus, I believe, is, uh, is it Greek? For for king? Something like that. So, yeah, that would be the, the kingly, the knightly, the, the, the lord kind of thing, Basileus. I think, yeah, it should be Greek for, for, for king. If I remember my studies, (laughs) my high school correctly. Settled for all time. Okay, all the money can change hands now, so I'm a bet. (laughs) So, well, thank you, Alessio. So I'm working on my Basilean army. I am still working on that. Uh, I've mentioned this on a couple of podcasts, but I am absolutely terrified to paint my halflings that I put together because my muscle memory is gone. So I am practicing on them and working away at Alex. I started working on my cavalry first, and I am terrified to do the infantry. And the one thing I know, I'm not painting yellow. No. I think I'm going to do blue, and I'm going to try not to go crazy on it. Now, I'm working on blue for the cloth, and uh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I'm working away on it right now. The only thing I can say about uh, Mantic Basilean horses is lots of straps, lots of straps. You see them in your uh, nightmares at night, and uh, there you go. Have you ever tried painting any of those Mantic horses before? I haven't had a chance to paint them yet, but yeah, that's what I hear is straps, straps, and more straps. But there's there's only 10 per regiment, so you only got a few to go. Well, and if you do minimal model count, it's only six. That's what I'm going for, so I'm in the Lessio territory. Well, not quite. Leave it to somebody else. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. I have somebody else painting those straps. So very, very good. All right. Well, while we go ahead, we'll slide into our first commercial break. We'll come back on the other side, and we're going to talk all things Alessio. I'm Ronnie from Mantic Games, and you're listening to Counter Charge. And welcome back. All right. Alessio, thank you so much for joining us today. It's going to be uh, a fun show. I'm really looking forward to it. So why don't we start off with something really easy. Why don't you give us a little bit about the Alessio story? In case nobody has ever heard of Alessio before. So. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, the the Alessio story. So in terms of my war game career, it started very early in life. I used to play with little age-old scale toy soldiers in Italy on the beach. We threw stones at them. 
beautiful explosions of sand and the soldiers fell over and that was the game. Fantastic. I still recommend it as a great game of skill. Later on, I played with several board games, role-play games, until the day that then in the club, I see these people playing a huge horde of uh, humans in kind of German Renaissance uh, uniforms, uh, fighting against a horde of rat men. And I've never seen anything like that. <laughs> I just looked at him and was like, what is this? <laughs> what is what am I what am I seeing? And yes, it was my first encounter with Warhammer Fantasy Battle. I was in my twenties, uh, because in Italy at the time it was a very, very small niche. Uh, hobby and yeah then fell in love with it came to england by bought a lot of toy soldiers came back into italy painted well <coughs> somebody painted it for me anyway got it painted played and just so happens that i won the italian national tournament in uh, 1995 i believe something like that it was a small affair of course at the time and uh, not quite as much competition but nevertheless the glory was mine i won it and i at the tournament, I met Jean-Paul Brizigotti, who was in charge against Worship Italy at the time. He's now in charge at Battlefront Miniatures, so I still remain in the, in the hub. But basically, he recruited me. He recruited me to come over to England to be a translator, to translate Fantasy Battle from English into Italian, to cre- basically create an Italian version of the game. So here we go. In my late 20s, Fritz University, moved to England, became a translator of Toy Soldiers, and... About a year later, after having won the staff tournament twice in Games Workshop, including beating Jean-Paul, I don't think he forgave me yet for for that. So yes, I kind of got to know all the designers, uh, Rick Priestley, George Johnson, Andy Chambers, all the group of legendary designers. And they later offered me a job as a designer. Uh, Game designer position came available. I jumped at it. And uh, that's how I started writing Rules for War Games. Uh, It was the Vampire Counts book, uh, my first book there. Then I wrote The Empire for Warhammer. Then 40K, then Lord of the Rings. So that's how I started with uh, writing lots and lots and lots of war games, all systems and everything. I worked on several other uh, games by Games Workshop. I worked there for 15 years. And uh, in 2010, that kind of stopped. And that's when Ronnie, who also had stopped working for Games Workshop the, the same year, I think, or something like the year before, Ronnie just went in and uh, said, would you like to write a game for me? <laughs> and uh, yeah, the rest is uh, part of the, of the history of Kings of War. So that was me, in brief. So with that, uh, we can get into the story of like how you and Ronnie kind of collaborated to create Kings of War. But was that was creating a new game something that you had had in your mind, like something you wanted to do before that moment? I mean, the, when I left Games Workshop and founded my own company called River Horse, the intent of River Horse was indeed to create my own games. Because, you know, after many, many years as a designer, you think, I would like to take things in a certain direction. I like to do things this way, and sometimes the your, your ideas don't, don't don't coincide with your employers, and uh, sometimes uh, you, you have chances to do things the way you would like them to do, and Kings of War was definitely one of those. It was a, a way of writing a war game, which indeed I had think thought about, you know, how, how, would, how would I start if I had to start from scratch? What would I do? And the, the essential motto there is that I would have wanted to be radically radically simpler with a, to have radically radically simpler rules uh, i 
I had this holy grail, this 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 mission, this quest that is about trying to design games, board games, card games, miniatures games, with as few rules, as little amount of rules as possible. Because there's a big philosophical point there, or I think the rules get in the way of the game, which is <laughs> an interesting statement. Absolutely. Uh, I think anyone who played Warhammer Fantasy casually through, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth edition, those first few games you get going every time you start playing again, it's like it's four or five hours because of all of the rules and all of the little interactions that you have to keep track of. And it doesn't, it's more bookkeeping than a game at, at, at a certain point. Yeah. And often there's uh, arguments between players because the, the, if you try to answer everything you write things and write things and write things you're kind of creating the expectation if nothing else that everything is covered right while actually in a war game by its nature because it's not a it's very different to write rules for a board game and a, and a war game uh, for the simple reason that you know there is no grid in a, in a, in a war game that level of imprecision inherent imprecision uh, means that you have to accept there is a degree of there are areas which are gray war games have gray areas unlike board games which in theory could have no gray areas because of, uh, of the grid uh, you're writing to basically it's almost like at one end you have role play games where it's all a gray area and everybody accepts that you know you think yeah you make up stuff as you go along that's a role play game and then you have Board game chess at one extreme, but things that have grid where you go, right, these are very clean, precise set of rules. War game is something in the middle. And that's the the trick is understanding that. Right, uh, to find the balance. Easy. So how was Kings of War just Ronnie coming up to you and saying, make me a game? Or was it a bit of a, did you guys have a, a discussion leading up to that? Or did you discuss it going on, going into it? I was literally, uh, as I said, I just started my company and I was doing my own things. But as uh, having left Warship, where I was one of the lead designers of all systems there, Ronnie, because he was starting Mantic and he, he was starting to, uh, the range of Kings of War, but he wanted a game to go with the range. So he literally uh, grabbed me at, I think it was Salute that year. I was there as a uh, with some friends. He just in a bar. <laughs> He just that I think it was actually Warren from Beasts of War. Yes, he he I was there having a having a drink with Ronnie, and he comes in and he goes, Ronnie, you should have this man write a game for you. <laughs> and Ronnie goes, Oh, funny that I was just about to ask him. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it started like that. Yeah, obviously I was open to work uh, having just you know started my own company uh, you never have enough work at the start so contract work uh, that was very clear from the start and that i would do it as an external consultant as a, as a contract job not as a as an employee etc because obviously i wanted to keep my independence after leaving workshop after 15 years i was Great. trying you know to make it out for my own business basically yeah you didn't want to get stuck or not stuck but you didn't want to get involved with another monolithic kind of company or you wanted some independence at that particular stage of my life i definitely felt like i wanted to basically be my own boss and uh, i mean but what what is it 2021 so 11 years later uh, still the company's still going so you know doing something <laughs> right <laughs> so you're in the bar with ronnie 
an outside source agrees that it's a good idea for you to write a war game for him. So what was what happened next? Like a little bit of brainstorming together, or did he just be like, go on your way and come back? Or, uh, well, I'd- basically. What what he did is he showed me the range, the plan for the range, and obviously said, okay, this is the the range that we need to include in this game. He, I mean, what I normally do as, as a service, which bizarrely probably started there, because at the time I was working on that and I was working on the bolt action for Warlord. So I, when a customer asks me this kind of question, I normally take them to a <laughs> to a trip where I kind of picture try to make them picture in their head what they want the game to be the experience of the game to be basically this is to form the brief and uh, it's normally a session of a million questions i would just go you know how many players how does it how long does it last how big is an army how many models how are the models organized how many elements do you control how, how long does it game does is a game is it how you go you go so basically i ask a lot of questions where sometimes they have a very clear answer in their mind sometimes they don't and they say oh i didn't think of that and either they come up with a reply or say to me well i'll take your recommendation for that <laughs> you know you, you tell me we together having a conversation a long long conversation kind of the, the, this is like a uh, Socratic birthing process, mental birthing, where you give birth to this thing through a long process. And that's the the long session that we did, uh, partly in that bar that night, but then we continued later in, uh, in his office uh, in Nottingham. Basically, there was a brief. And the challenge I laid on the table there while we were doing the brief is I said to him that I would write the war game in eight pages, eight pages of a5, yeah, half letter size. That was it's a funny story because he thought uh, I was talking about like a, like an intro mini game and, and then a, a proper war game would follow. But no, that was the game. You know, I, I did say, no, 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 that, that's the game. And initially wouldn't believe that. But then I wrote it, they tried it, and they were like, oh, yes, <laughs> it is a fully fledged war game in eight pages. And it was like, this is the game. This is it. Yes, this is not a little tiny intro game to a future war game. No, no, this isn't the war game. <laughs> you don't need three 150-page books to get started. <laughs> you don't. You don't. I think that's one of the things that the community has really like accepted and embraced is that the game is on the surface is simple, but that in, its, in and of itself provides so much depth and freedom to enjoy and and play a great tactical game you don't the game doesn't get in the way you know the game just lets you play yes i think the the ideal the 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 quest is to play a game to design a game and then play a game that when you're playing the game you're not thinking about the rules you're mm-hmm. thinking about your moves you're thinking about what's the best move you're thinking about your strategy you're not thinking oh how does that work? Oh, can I do this? And again, a classic example, again, is chess. When you're playing chess, your brain is going, okay, I'll do this, then I do that, then he does that, and I will do, I will counter with this. You're not thinking, oh, how does a bishop move again? Oh, yeah, can I do this with a knight? But, or, or no, I'm not sure. Oh, let me check the book. <laughs> can a knight yeah. do this? No, you, you don't do that, which is the, you know, the, the objective is when the rules disappear. You play the game, you don't play the rules. That's the ideal, where you want to be, yes. Starting from eight pages, Kings of War now is like, I think it's 40-odd pages of main rules. 
in the book in third edition, plus magic items and some special rules and the armies. But yeah, how do you feel about the the bloat? And still, I say at 40 pages, it's still a pretty lean rule set. I Bloat is a harsh word, but I think, you know, the general growth of the rules as how do you feel about that as, as a as a development with Kings of War? I mean, it has to be said that 40 rules, 40 pages are not are not a it's not a big role section, particularly if you consider that those initial eight pages were very dense text <laughs> and a few diagrams. Exactly. <laughs> well, actually, a 40 pages rule set, well, when you include gorgeous pictures of toy soldiers, you know, they take out half a page, uh, most pages, and uh, and you know, the layout is a little more breezy, is a little more uh, you know, so. It would be interesting to compare the word count rather than the number of pages because these are also bigger pages and a bigger font and everything. Why don't we uh, reconvene at some stage and we compare the the word count between the original version one and version three? Because I'm pretty sure it's not huge the difference. I agree. Like I think it's. I think you're correct in that it's the density has changed and, and it is a lot more prettier. <laughs> yeah, it's prettier, and the diagrams are much clearer. There's a lot more diagrams. I think that's a good point that you raise. Like maybe there isn't actually that much bloat. Just a few extra clarifications and a few, a little more depth to the rules. To because ten years of play has you know lots of oh, questions yeah, no, you're to, right. to, to kind of clarify and just streamline things. But I think absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I'm sure that you know is not that it hasn't grown, but. I don't think he's gone from 80 to 40 in proportion. That's what I'm saying. He's not four times more rules. Than, you know, if, you go, if you go 10 to 40, that would be like four times. I don't think the rules have grown by four times. Um, you know, Maybe by 50%, but certainly not by 400%. So I'm thinking, you're right. Some of it is, is development, what we call development, where you, you know, you're trying to expand. Maybe there are some areas that are not covered or some extra rules that frankly, for flavor. Uh, th- that's the classic problem is that you want to always add flavor. And the more flavor you add, the more uh, complexity you add, the more rules you add. I mean, uh, one great example of simplifications in Kings of War uh, in the original version, uh, when it came to, I don't know, ethereal uh, creatures, you always go, oh, how does this work? You know, rules for ethereal creatures are complicated. You know, they're there. You cannot hurt them, but they can hurt you. How does that work? Kind of thing. And then my, my answer was, yeah, they have the fence six. That, that's that's it, six. So yeah. they're really, really hard. They're not ethereal per se. There is no rule for ethereal. You know, how does running away work in this game? All the rules for uh, for running, rallying, moving away from the enemy. None of that exists. And that's very intentional, is the no. But of course, there are some situations where people feel the need of adding, for example, flavor or, for example, the whole charging and bouncing back was a mechanic that some people didn't like you know to, to separate combats after after a, a round of combat so that people obviously particularly because the king's war has developed a lot in third edition with feedback from the community as you know guys uh, the uh, my involvement uh, stopped with the second edition of the game and the third edition i step back and uh, the community effectively the, the rules committee took over in terms of uh, uh, design so uh, indeed the rules have evolved they're not as succinct i guess as they used to be but again i don't think they've grown that much it's still a rule set that you can be described as it has enough rules if there aren't too many rules yes it's still certainly I mean, 40 and really literally 40 pages of, uh, of a rule book uh, laid out in a pretty way is not a lot of words. That is a good point. 
Now, Alessio, you originally designed Kings of War to be a tournament-friendly game, I believe. That was part of the brief. If you remember the thing about the big brief, yeah, that was definitely one of the questions. Like, do we want this to be competitive or not competitive? Is it playable competitively or not? And the answer was definitely yes. Uh, the time element is a big thing. Actually, I find really cool of Kings of War. I think the fact that you can play it on a chess clock is a strong point from that competitive point of view. One thing I hate at tournaments is time wasting. It's just, you know, when people pretend to be hurt and just waste time. Oh, no, sorry, that's football. Uh, when people do other things and uh, <laughs> when people do other things and just waste time, you know, go on calls or something, it is just the worst. And, you know, if you play with a clock, with a chess clock at Kings of War, you cannot waste time, which is great. And I think listeners might be a little surprised since I have been known to play slowly at times, but I, I agree. Like playing on a clock is one of the best things about Kings of War tournaments and just being able to play and just generally being able to play a game in two hours. Having two hours be more than enough time is a great feature for a game. I think the other part of that too is you do all the actions on your turn and then turn it over. So your opponent can't slow play you from, you know, rolling save. You do all the actions on yours. That was a very specific uh, design element that you put in, Alessio? Indeed. And that was specifically so that you then you could use a chess clock because I don't know if uh, all, all listeners are familiar with how a chess clock works, but basically it's two clocks side by side and you can stop. Basically, one clock is my clock, one clock is your clock. So say we have an hour of time each. I have an hour of time, you have an hour of time. When I'm moving, my clock is ticking, your clock is stopped. When I finish moving, and that's why the design, I do stuff in my turn and you don't interact, so I'm using my time. I then stop my clock when I finish my turn, your clock starts and it counts down your time. So I use my time in my turn, you use your time in your turn, which means there is no uh, wasting time uh, within the turn, which is is fair. It is just the, the best way of making sure that you use your time. And strategically, like in chess, the great thing is the more you think, the slower you move, the more pressure you're putting on yourself, the more likely you are to lose because of the time. Because obviously, if your time if your time runs out, you lose regardless of what's happened on the field. So that forces you to finish the game, the sixth turn, seventh turn, whatever the, the the turns you play that have to be finished within the time. So, but the great thing is that thinking, you need to do the thinking in your opponent's turn, not in your turn. The ideal situation is I think about what I'm going to do in your turn. When is my turn? I just execute. Execute, execute, execute as fast as possible. Stop the time. The pressure is back on you. I'm thinking about what to do next. And that's the ideal way to play. Of course, reality. <laughs> reality is somehow different, but that's what you're trying to do. <laughs> now, when a game is designed like that for tournament play, then you get into the complications. I know that I loved first edition. And because it was very narrative and was fun and it, the rules were a little slimmer than they are now. But and then you need the clarifications in the FAQ. So that's when the community gets involved and it starts evolving a little bit and you get more extra rules and things like that. So and where I'm going with that is another thing that you didn't really detail that much. And we're starting to a little bit in the game right now is the magic system. Originally, we had one spell called Zap. <laughs> so <laughs> now why did you make that type of design decision 
<laughs> well, the idea indeed was to make the the mag- magic just literally a, a form of ranged attack. Roughly, that was the we we had there were more spells I suppose with some armies, particularly the undead, have their own things, so that they have more interaction. But but basically, yes, to keep spells very much a I target that unit with my range attack and the effect is X, Y, or Z, and it kind of zap indeed is some damage. But basically, very basic, very simple, not a separate phase, not a separate system, not a separate... And indeed, like you say, I remember already in second edition uh, and further we were developing the armist, etc., that indeed the, the driving from the from the community, but um, obviously also from management, Mantic, because obviously the community is very, very important for Mantic because of the structure of the company. They they use crowdfunding a lot, therefore they have to follow the community very, very much more than other companies that maybe do things uh, more like uh, designer-led as opposed to community-led. Uh, where, so it's a different politic, but certainly because the community is so heavily involved, then pressure like adding spells i remember very clearly being a no we want more spells we want more complexity in that field and suddenly indeed there's a range of spells that you can customize your wizards with etc why before it was no this wizard has that (laughs) that one spell that wizard has got the other spell so yes uh, that's a very good example of how in a way granularity as in the 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 desire of um, adding detail uh, sometimes contradicts the simplicity, which is the, 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 the purity of the design, if you want. And, and the, I mean, there is no right and wrong answer. Uh, as I said, it's a matter of taste. Some people prefer games which are very, very, very simple. Some people prefer games that have a lot of a lot of choice, a lot of variability, uh, variability a lot of customization. One extreme chess, the other extreme role-play games. And all the other games somewhere in between, and it's a matter of taste taking a look at rules bloat and things like that or you know just the expansion i guess you're looking for where that tipping point is so where it starts simple goes up uh, i'll mention age of sigmar four pages of rules now it's like 40 pages of rules so because they're pretty simplistic and then the community is developing it as it goes along and things like that and they've got a lot of the rules on the cards and things like that so it's a much different design than kings but similar we have got some rules in there but we use uh, you know the keys with the special rules and things like that how do you as a designer look to see where that tipping point is where it goes from something simplistic that you're playing the game and not the rules to where it tips into the rules, you know, similar to Warhammer when you've got all the army books and the spell cards and the... How do you look for that? You're a very seasoned game designer, so that's why I'm trying to pick your brain on that. Well, I've uh, seen that happening in many, many systems. Like you said, I mean, seasoned as in <laughs> scars from many, many, many... from looking after very many systems. Forging Swordship, from Warlord, from Mantic, etc. But... Uh, I think, in a way, is linked to the commercial needs of the company. The company needs to sell more product, and therefore it will add to the range. It will add new armies. It will add new editions of the same game. So the game will evolve. It will grow physically, as in maybe you start with four armies, eight, six armies, eight armies, and then, oh, but we want to launch a new army, and suddenly a new army comes in, a new book, and the number of books keeps growing, and the number of interactions between those books and the existing rules keeps growing, and therefore then you go a rata to fix how these will uh, these new books will interact with some of the rules already existing. So uh, what I'm saying is what 
one thing that drives the growth is the expansion of the game, literally. <laughs> the number of models, the number of units, the number of armies in there. Uh, so that's one driver. The other is indeed the community wanting to contribute to it. In some cases, uh, I think it can get out of hand. I mean, I've seen that going out of hand in some situations where I think sometimes the the tournament scene can actually, because the, the difference is people who play at tournaments are not the same people that play for fun with their friends and family. So there's a, I'm sure there is a crossover between the two, but they are very different communities and Sometimes if you design too much for one community, then you're kind of alienating the other. So if your rules are too tournamenty, then the people that want friendly games kind of go, nah, I'm going to look for another game. If your rules are too friendly and the game is not suitable for tournaments, then you're losing the, the, the crowd of, uh, of, uh, of gamers, of uh, hardcore gamers. So it's interesting to choose which direction you want to go. And uh, there are many game systems out there. Some of them aim in one direction, some of them don't. Uh, Case of Kings War, definitely, I think the tournament scene, the tournament community is important. How important it is in comparison with the friendly scene? I don't know, guys. What do you think? What do you think the proportion is for Kings of War? I think, well, I'm more of a tournament competitive-styled gamer, but I think having a balanced game that is good for tournament play gives you a little more leeway on the friendly side too because i think if you're playing casually and a game is balanced and clear for tournament play it it's still friendly if you want to play it that way like you don't have to have a super optimized list that you practice with to to enjoy the game because the rules are clean the game is clear the community has like accepted standards of play then you then you can build off of that for your narrative campaign or just your casual game that you're just playing on a Sunday once a month or every other month with your friends. Good point, yep. And as you mentioned before, Alessio, you designed this for tournament play, so it was streamlined and everything to be used with the chess clock. But the design that you put together was so home friendly and so it wasn't bloated. It was just clean. And just like Alex said, it just made it great for home play too. So you certainly hit that sweet spot with Kings and that's something I truly appreciate. <laughs> yeah, it's true that me start simple, sometimes it grows and sometimes it grows because people think that to cover some issues say like oh this game we identified after playing it for years and years etc we identified three issues and often the solution that is taken is to add rules to solve those issues to you know oh in this case then this happens in this case well what if this happens oh in that other case this other thing oh if this while actually i w- i think that the one thing one should ask myself before adding is could this issue be resolved by actually being more radical and cutting this whole thing off <laughs> simplifying as opposed to adding taking yes. away as opposed to adding that's something that i try to do and something that i remember jervis uh, was one of his uh, one of his mantras is you know that they said that the design is finished when the not when there's nothing left to add but when there's nothing left to take out <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's an important principle that I'm not sure everybody applies. Yeah, that's like the Einstein quote. You should everything should be as simple as possible, but no simpler, or something to that effect. 
and I think sometimes indeed, particularly in case of, uh, I've seen tournament organizers that, I mean, these guys obviously don't do this for a living. It's it's a hobby and therefore they tend to go the other way. They tend to add stuff. You know, oh, if, in, in case X, then Y applies. And then somebody else you know, goes, oh, well, whatever if Z happens. Oh, if Z happens, then, you know, Z, Y applies. <laughs> So it keeps growing, and that is why sometimes you get these huge piles of plaster over plasters over plasters, which you know kind of maybe you should have actually gone the other way instead of adding plasters on top. You should have just cut the, the whole arm off, kind of thing. Again, that was a bit like the you know how which directions do fleeing units go? Oh, yeah, flee away from the enemy. Right, the enemy is just kind of shot at you or beat you in combat. Right, yes. But what if there's a big enemy behind me? Ah, well, yes. In that case, you flee towards your table edge. Uh, but, okay, what if there's an enemy, a bigger enemy there about stopping me? You flee to, and you add all this potential. What if that happens? Then direction is this. If not this and blah, blah. Well, actually, there the solution was you don't run away. You are removed from the table. There is no such thing. Running away, and that's the you know when I'm talking about chopping the arm off as opposed to to adding layers of bandages on the wound, is the assumption there is no I don't care that this unit is actually not obviously disappeared from the table they're not just vanished they are running away they they're running they're scattering they may reform you know uh, two hours later behind that wood over there I don't care for the matter of this engagement. The one we're portraying in this game, it doesn't matter that they will rally later and they're not all dead to a man or anything like this. But removing them simplifies your game and get, keeps you getting on with the, with the game, which is, you know, that, that's an example, I think, of the, what, I'm, what I was saying. Yeah. Take away instead of adding. And just in a recent example of the latest FAQ, the Rules Committee was clarifying the disengage withdraw mechanic. And I think they did the right thing in that. They had tried to modify it in the last FAQ, and it didn't quite clear it up as much as they wanted. So they just rewrote it. They just said, take that section out, and we're just going to rewrite the, that section more clearly. And I think that was the right decision, because sometimes adding or you know changing sentences here and there can help, but sometimes it's just not enough. Sometimes you just have to redo it. And I think they did a really good job to clarify it with, here's a new paragraph. We're going to do it this way. You don't always have to just keep on adding, like you said, like those if, that, if, this, then what clauses. Just sometimes take a step back and reframe it. Or kill it. <laughs> yes, or yeah, kill I it. suppose you cannot do that. You cannot do that in an FAQ. The, the killing chance happens uh, between, you know, next edition kind of thing. Yes, you really exactly. cannot go, we'll kill, we'll kill this section of the rule book in the middle with an FAQ. That's not right. <laughs> you can do that. This all reminds me, back in my previous life as a, as a marketing consultant, we used to uh, optimize the menus for chain restaurants. Right. And you'd have the appetizer menu, the main menu, the dessert menu, all these different menus. And after hundreds of studies and thousands and thousands of surveys, you'd, you've kind of, we had kind of narrowed it down to a main course menu should be about 20 to 25 items. And people should have about three or four items on that menu that they like. All these chains, they would come to us and they would just like, well, we have like 20 items we want to add to the menu. And you're like, well, that means you have to get rid of something. Like you can't yeah. just keep adding more things to the menu to get more people to come because at a certain point, 
people just get paralyzed and then they don't <laughs> want anything. It's like if there's too many things on the menu, people start wanting less. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Par- paralysis. Analysis paralysis, wasn't yeah, it? Yes, so you, you want just enough things on the menu that there are like three or four things that people really want. And you want like, you know, to get like 60 or 70 percent of people who are interested in the restaurant to want three or four things. And then you optimize the menu to include as many of those combinations as possible. Once you get over 25 items, people just start wanting less and less on the menu, even if you don't change what's on the menu. There is such thing as too much choice indeed. Alex, do you think that that applies to army selection as well? Like how many armies do we have in Kings right now? 26 with the halflings coming? I think that's part of it, because like, you, you do want to keep adding armies to keep the players who have been with the game longer interested, because you can't just have the, the original 8 or 12, and just everyone has 12 armies, and they're all the same. So I think there's a bit of that pressure to add more armies, but then you have to make sure that they're adding value. I think Matt and I, in our last episode a few months ago, we were talking about how like Brother Mark and Sylvan Kin and Ratkin Slaves, like, you're like, why? Like, what is what do they bring to the game, what kind of depth and choice do they offer that isn't available elsewhere? And I think that's a really important design question that has to be asked and answered when you're adding a new army. Like, what is, how is this creating valuable, a new valuable choice for the player as opposed to just more choice? Because like people are just going to ignore it if it's just a bad choice. And then, then it's a negative because people are like, well, that army's not very good and why does it even exist? And so I think. There is definitely that balance that has to be played there. Well, you mentioned the balance word. We're going to get to that in a minute. Using your marketing thing, you also don't want to take away people's favorites. You know what I mean? So how do you strike that balance? I'm, I'm really fascinated by your marketing uh, sense there. You know, how did you guys balance that? Taking away favorites. That was the specific question, actually. We had like, what one item? What is the thing that makes you come to this restaurant? So like, you would do a test to see if there's like certain things that if we remove this item, then people would have a problem. It's like at McDonald's, like you can add, they, they have like their core menu. Like if you remove the Big Mac, that's going to be a problem. There's certain things that are protected and you have to, you know, know your game and customers and players well enough to know like, well, we can't remove Basileans or we can't remove Ratkin or something like that. You have to look at that. Like what are the core products? What are the, what are the, what are the things that the IP is attached to before you start trimming? But then yeah, one, one has to remember that these choices are not purely based on game design, of course. Uh, these are products for commercial yeah, yes. companies that need to manage a range, manage product, manage distribution, manage warehousing. Uh, yeah. So uh, elements that are not visible, so visible to, to the public also also are. How many SKUs does that army have? Like, you know, how efficient, like, what's the, how, you know, how many resin models, how many plastic models, how many rustic models, like, all those things probably play a huge role in these decisions. And, like, obviously, Rackin Slaves, kind of an army, is an easy army to add because they make all the models for it with the new Ratkin and the Abyssal Dwarf. So it's like, it's a, it's an army they can add with very little manufacturing, like, overhead or cost increases. You can look at it that way. Like, well, in game, Reckon Slaves doesn't really give you much. But from a distribution and marketing standpoint, it's like we get another army for free from a Mantic's perspective. Interesting. Well, I always have this mantra, you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And that flows all into balance. So, Alessio, you know, when you were designing Kings and you were balancing the armies and things like that, that's always what everybody talks about as a hallmark of Kings is 
They like to say it's perfectly balanced. Nothing's perfectly balanced, okay? Not even machining. No, no, Nothing's don't say that perfectly balanced. Don't say that <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry. But, uh. Thanos is going to come out of the shadows. So, but as you're adding armies and, you know, you've got a lot of design experience, I mean, how difficult really is that to, to put in balance in the interaction? <laughs> yes, balance is, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> Very famous game designer, actually, not name names, uh, certainly had a philosophy that he, he, he taught me uh, is that there is no such thing as balance. There is the illusion of balance, <laughs> the impression of balance. So the idea is, of course, like you said, nothing is perfectly balanced in, in I'm talking war games here. Uh, no war game, you could say, is 100% perfectly balanced. When you write a competitive system where you need basically points values you know because if, you, if there's no points value if it's all a free for all then it doesn't matter but if you want to balance the system a tournament system then you need points values when you have to assign points values you need a system to create that and you can have algorithms based on the numerical values in the in the stat line of the of the units and you can go right okay so this is worth this match and you can configure it so that actually not all numbers not all characteristics are worth that have the same weight in in the point values yeah? so you can go right you know maybe movement is less important than this but these other stats is more important than that so they, they all have a different weight you can weigh your system and then apply it across that would be kind of balanced because it kind of applies, but even that, if you if you get the the weight of something wrong, you know if you don't give enough importance to movement, then armies that are faster will get a disproportionate advantage. So even just a purely numerical system, I don't think can be a hundred percent balanced because again, it's about how much weight do you give to every to every characteristic, and then on top of all of that, you add all the special rules. Uh, you know, some special rules and the way they interact and how they, how many points are they, how do you value them, how, how much weight do you give them in the, in the points values. It's, you know, it, it, there are so many variables that your points values will never be 100% balanced. It's too complex a system. However, what you try to do is to make it reasonably balanced so that it's an initial, you know, you have a system, you apply the system, then you play test. The playtesting will give you a feeling, a feedback on how good you managed to weigh your uh, your system. And, you know, I have designed a lot of games and you always go through a process of trial and error. You always go, right, this, oh, maybe I made these things a bit too good. I made war machines a bit too good. I made large creatures a bit too good or not good enough. Uh, you're aiming for a place where basically is. Everything is arguably balanced. People can argue that uh, cavalry uh, is cavalry worth it, or is it better to stick to infantry, or is cavalry too good? Therefore, you know, uh, all cavalry armies should be fantastic. All missile armies is, is ranged combat too, too too powerful. So you try to bring it to a place where people don't have a very unique you know, answer to that. Because if everybody agrees, on, no, you take this unit all the time and then you win, you got it wrong. If you get it to a point where people argue which one is the best solution, that, that's what you want. Is You want people to not be sure about what the perfect combination is. And I suppose one way of looking at that is you look at competitive events and keep good track of which armies are coming on top. You really literally rank your armies based on tournament results. 
So I don't know if Mantic is still doing this, but certainly I remember doing this at the beginning, whereby we would go, you know, in tournaments, get the data sheets the tournament organizers used to uh, to rank players during the game. So you get the final scores, the final scores of all the armies, and you go right, okay, so army. So I don't know. Th- this army does that. Elves do this. Dwarves do that. Undead do that. So you you would rank all the results and go right this army is actually winning a lot a lot of tournaments is very very high so you know next time around maybe we need to keep an eye on that army and tone it down a bit that's really the process of balancing a war game and is uh, never 100 percent. it's never finished that process continues for additions for rules through new books through it's an organic process I think that's kind of where the Clash of Kings annual updates have really helped with Kings of War, because look, they they go through you know tournament results, what's going on, what's popular, what's being used more, what's being used successfully more, so that we can kind of tweak things and rebalance and even just mix things up a little bit. They accept that it won't be perfectly balanced, so it's about you know maybe shifting the imbalance a little bit, maybe a little bit the other way, so you can kind of find that that middle ground over time. And you never find a perfect place, but, you know, it will keep you entertained trying to find that perfect place. Yes, the eternal quest. All the players are going to try try to find their efficiencies, what's the best for the points, and then the game designers are going to constantly try to push to find, find what the appropriate costs are. And then sometimes the game designer might say, hey, we want to sell a little bit more of this, wing it, maybe, and uh, go for a, a, a slightly over-optimized unit just keeps things interesting right well i'm sure that commercial drives have influenced game design in uh, in, in in throughout my career and it's quite a few points certainly yes yeah. but that is a, a thing yeah does mantic or the rules committee or anybody ask you specifically for your tournament results you do king beyond the wall right so i think not specifically i think right now i tom annis and nick williams are collecting are doing a lot of data analysis with lists uh, i don't know if the, who on the rc is doing it or if they're if they're just like kind of contracting that out to those two but i know that they're collecting large data sets on both like what works and what's what's being used oh that makes a lot of sense with nick's in-depth uh breakdowns of dice rolling and things like that that's very very interesting i didn't know that oh i'm glad that they're capturing all that data the community is very involved, and I think I, I would hope that Mantic is availing themselves of the available analyses that are being done. Very cool. So now, Alessio, segueing a little bit into River Horse, balance. Do you find that there's a difference between balance for board games as opposed to, like, the miniature-type games? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, board games are very different uh, beasts, and uh, so are role-play games. Uh, River Horse, we, we've recently done quite a few board games and role-play games. Role-play games have a beautiful advantage in the fact that they're not played competitively, uh, or at least they shouldn't be. <laughs> I do know some D&D players which get really, really aggressive, which I always find hilarious. They, 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 you know, when there's a, they start a competition with a GM, when, you know, you're, you're in a bit of an adventure and... And the players start to go, no, I will, uh, you know, they start to overrule the GM and try to win the fight. That's such an incredible attitude, considering that the guy could just go, all right, and another hundred million orcs suddenly appear from your left. (laughs) Just like, you're not really that to beat the GM. So I don't quite get it. But yeah, 
anyway, so role-playing games, other than these exceptions, are um, cooperative in nature, and therefore the people don't look at the rules in that kind of aggressive manner, which means that you don't you don't have to worry about balance because the the GM will balance it so that uh, he achieves what he wants, which is everybody has fun. <laughs> that's that's so. That basically, what I'm saying is, RPGs are a little more forgiving from that point of view. You don't have that um, kind of edge of oh my god, everything has to be perfectly balanced. Board games, board games, card games, that kind of thing. Um, again, it depends whether it's a whether it's a competitive board game or a or a cooperative board game. Where again, you don't have that problem of aggressive competitiveness between players, but you do have the. It, that's very interesting. Designing co- uh, cooperative board games is that you have to those have to be really really well balanced because the game has to play against the players so you have to make sure and those we do play test a lot <laughs> because you have to make sure that the experience is challenging but not impossible or not too easy to to, to beat uh, the labyrinth board game being an example you know the, the amount of it lasts 13 turns maximum and uh, you you want people to be able to finish the game in you know, within the 13 turns and more or less win 50% of the times because, you know, it has to be challenging. Uh, but not too easy, otherwise there's no point playing if you just know, yeah, you do this, you do that, and then you win. So uh, there are different challenges when, when doing board games. Now, Riverhorse developed a board war game with Waterloo, and my French is horrible, so I'll let you pronounce it. <laughs> Waterloo. Well, I don't know. I I think that, that that's a classic. That's a traditional war game, uh, as in uh, sorry, not a miniatures war game. That's a very traditional uh, hex hex and uh, combo counters game. That was uh, that is competitive. That is again very very finely balanced because again it represents a historical battle. So you have some constraints that you normally don't have in uh, fantasy and science fiction, as in you cannot make things up. <laughs> You have to you have to stick to what was uh, there at the time. Yeah, actually, historical stuff presents a different set of challenges from from fantasy science fiction in the fact that there you don't have complete control on your variables, but there's a huge crowd there that will pick up if you did things that are clearly wrong. Like this cannon should be more powerful than that cannon, clearly because history, blah blah blah. It's something that, yeah, an angle that you don't have in Kings of War, for sure. There's nobody saying, I think you'll find that an elf, elven bow should be much better than this this human bow by this much. Because, you know, look at the accounts of all these battles <laughs> where the elves outshot the men. <laughs> so, yeah, different challenges, different... Perhaps you don't suffer from the growth issue when you do war game, when you do board games and card games and role-play games. You don't have the that... What we were talking about, the the, the the creep, the huge increase in stuff that has to remain balanced. Yeah, In the case of role-play game, yes, you add stuff, but it doesn't, the balance doesn't matter. In the case of board games, they don't grow exponentially as big as war games. So it's a more contained system normally. You don't have to worry about that many variables. So, yeah, there's no problem with growth so much with board games. We've danced around and talked a little bit about River Horse, so why don't we go ahead and move into that? So back in 2010, I think you mentioned uh, you started off on your own venture called River Horse. So what is River Horse? <laughs> yes, it's a small game company, well, a small medium game company, where we started with the idea of making our own games completely. And then we ended up actually uh, being hired to do services of games for other companies. So I've 
done contracts with Mantic, of course, with Warlord Games, with Fantasy Flight, several other companies that basically smaller companies that basically have hired us and now with, with, with Draco Studios. There was a lot of services for third parties, which was not exactly what we had in mind when we started the company, but obviously as you know when you're when you're you have your own business then you know when an occasion comes up it's very difficult to say no actually we we don't want to do things uh yes you always say yes because you know business is business but then we we also managed to not only do services for the company but also produce our own games starting in 2010 indeed with a chess variant which was a chess and war games mixture called shuro uh, it all started with that was the idea was applying chess and war games, so playing war games to to chess. The concept of, you know, that in chess there's a point system. You know, a rook is worth five pawns, so it's worth five. Uh, a bishop is three, and so on. So we thought, okay, what if you have a hundred points and you have to buy your pieces before a game of chess? Would you like to play with two queens and three rooks? That's your army. <laughs> or would you want 27 pawns? <laughs> so that kind of stuff. And then we put terrain in it, etc. And actually we did with Mantic, we did Loka, which was a fantasy version of that, which added some magic and some fantasy creatures and a four-player ver- version of that too. Anyway, so we started with those games and then <clears throat> licensing came about. So River Horse... Uh, found this formula whereby which we use a lot these days whereby we tend to go for a for an uh, an IP an intellectual property that is basically that we like and that the conditions tend to be I must like it <laughs> and uh, or love it in fact and has to be something that we feel can turn into a nice game into a game uh, and therefore we licensed a lot of properties and made quite a few games and some, some big ones I mean I made a role play game based on My Little Pony called Tales of Equestrian we made a Terminator game I've more than one Terminator game including a war game recently a Pacific Rim uh, war game uh, which is the second wave the Kickstarter is coming in right now we've done labyrinth very successful the most successful range in fact is based on jim henson's uh, labyrinth and dark crystal so the labyrinth and the dark crystal we made board games card games <laughs> puzzles rpgs all sorts of things uh, that's a has got a very dedicated following and people really love it, including myself. So uh, it, it's great to work with that company and create games in that field. We've done uh, the Hunger Games. That was impressive, getting that license. Highlander. But we also recently tried to go back to doing also, as well as licensed games, games that are not licensed, but basically we own, like the, uh, like Waterloo, like, like Shura. So there's a game I'm working on at the moment that I, we haven't announced yet, but it's not licensed, which is, yay, <laughs> going back of not working for a, for a licensor, with a licensor, really, not for a licensor. And still, we work with Mantic on several things, like uh, we've done an Umbrella Academy game for them, Hellboy RPG, we did some consultation with them. So yeah, we still we still do services, as well as, um, as our own games. And the biggest thing is definitely at the moment in terms of collaboration is the one with Draco Studios, where we're doing a board game called Lords of Vala, which is a really cool board game, actually. it's uh, I, I'm, As I said before, I, I am sorry that this is not a River Horse-owned board game, but it's actually theirs because it's so cool. It's, you play either two players play as generals of armies and two players play as dragons. And so 
basically you have four different type of so two different type of armies, two different type of things you can do in the game. You can be a dragon or a or a general with your armies conquering the land, and they interact. They can ally. They have AI versions playing them. So yeah, quite an interesting game. But they also have a war game uh, based on the same thing, which we'll be working on next. So yeah, busy. Riveros, pretty busy. Yes. Well, that's a good thing for sure. Uh, Loka, I loved. That was a lot of fun. I still have it, and I still have my Alessio riding his river horse. So <laughs> <laughs> I've got the helmeted and bareheaded version. So uh, whatever happened to those molds? Any any chance we'll see that uh, model come back out again? Uh, we have a couple, a few, very few left of those models. And the molds, gosh, I feel the molds are still with Oh, no, no, we have the molds. We have the molds, yeah, yeah, yeah. We inherited the molds, yeah. The, the, I know where they are, yes. So we could make more, yes. <laughs> Not planning to, but, you know, one day, who knows. So if you would love to get a uh, Alessio riding a hippo model, just uh, send those emails off to River Horse Games, and uh, with that <laughs> huge wave of requests, maybe one day we'll see those models <laughs> reissued. So <laughs> they're terrific. Certainly, I love it, because uh, you were a knight in the game or something like that, so yeah, if yeah, I recall. It could, it could be used as a knight, yes, uh, to replace the knight in the game, yes. Very good. So why don't we go ahead? We'll slide into a commercial break. We'll come back on the other side and we'll do shout outs and we'll wrap up the show. Are you looking for your favorite tabletop games from Wizards of the Coast, Mantic, Warlord, Fantasy Flight and more? Then check out War Room Hobbies located in Memphis, Tennessee. We carry all the best titles to suit your gaming needs, including Magic the Gathering, Historical, Sci-Fi and Fantasy Games. Our full line of Games Workshop products generous gaming area and competitor prices will make us your favorite place to go to war join us at the war room for more information check us out at warroomhobbies.com and welcome back all right alex it's been a great show so far and boy i hope everybody has really enjoyed it so uh do you have any shout outs for tonight well, it'll be over by the time we release this, but I just want to send a good luck out to uh, all the people playing in Masters coming up soon, especially the Northeast team, which would have loved to have been a part of. Cheer on my fellow Northeasterners to succeed at Masters, and I'm just excited that Ontario here is not locked down. We're coming out of lockdown, so gaming, in-person gaming starting up again. We're playing on decks and patios and hopefully soon inside stores. It's uh, it's going to be a good summer. How about you, Mark? Before I do that, I, we have to get your pick. You know, so this is kind of like uh, in the sealed envelope. It'll be revealed later. Do you have a Do you have a pick? I know everyone's picking Jeff O'Neill, but because of his his reign of terror in the southeast, I'm going to pick the other disgusting goblin list and go with Travis Tim. For a master. <laughs> there you go. All right. No pressure. We'll see. It should be a good time. We've been watching the matchup casts and everything else. It's been uh it's been a lot of fun. It's just good to have the masters back. You know. It, it it's just fun to watch, you know, even if you're never gonna go or anything like that. It's just a lot of fun and hopefully they'll bring best of the rest back next year when we can all start getting together. So it's truly a celebration of the hobby. So I cannot wait. So it's very, very good to have it back. And it's back in uh, Lone Wolf uh, territory back there in Dallas, right? Yep. Down in Texas. I think it's going to be a good good event, and I think it'll be a good way to kind of kickstart the new 
the new era, the post-lockdown era of Kings of War. Fantastic. Alessio, do you have any shout-outs tonight? Uh, not, not not specifically, but I have to say that I, I agree with you guys that uh, seeing that the lockdown is, lockdowns are calming down and the people are able to go and get and together and play games is uh, is really, really cool to see. It's really cool to see, and I uh, can't wait until be playing some uh, some wargaming tournaments as well because I I do like tournaments. So. <laughs> yes, yes, looking forward to that. Well, on that note, I mean, my shout out is pretty similar. I'm really looking forward to everybody popping their heads out, going around, and you know, just seeing people again. I saw that they just had a tournament down here with uh, just a ten person one day down in a park. Mike Carter ran that. Uh, I know Felix was there. And so that was just cool to just see the pictures and just see, you know, stuff starting to open up and things like that. I'm looking forward to hopefully Adepticon. And uh, we'll definitely have Origins coming up here uh, late September, early October. As of right now, myself and the kids are planning on going. And uh, so that should be a good time. I know that Mike Carter is going to be running a full slate of Kings of War events, at least in his mind. We'll see if that goes out into practice or not. But, of course, a big shout-out to the Pathfinder extraordinaire, Mike Carter. He carried this entire hobby on his back in first edition and continues to do so today. He's one amazing individual, and I don't know how he does it. So absolutely amazing, Mike, you know, with your blog and everything else. Thank you for what you do for the community. So, All righty. Well, I guess that's going to do us for tonight. And, Alex, why don't you go ahead and take us out? All right. Well, I guess that's going to do us for tonight. And Alessio, why don't you go ahead and take us out? Great to talk to you guys. Uh, until next time, keep countercharging. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons. 